Hello, and welcome to the Asia Matters podcast. This edition is brought to you in partnership with the Asia Pacific program at the London-based think tank Chatham House. My name's Bill Hayton, and I'm an associate fellow with the program and also a former BBC reporter in Vietnam, which I mentioned because Vietnam is the subject of today's discussion. Vietnam has elected a new leadership. Well, sort of. There was an election, in fact, several elections, but only members of the Communist Party were eligible to take part. And the new leadership that was elected looks pretty similar to the old one. But this is important in itself, as we'll be discussing. The elections took place at the Communist Party Congress, which sets the country's political direction for the next five years. And we'll also be talking about that too. My guests are two of the best observers of Vietnamese politics that I know. Nguyen Phuong Ling used to work as a journalist with the Financial Times and Reuters in Hanoi, but now works as an analyst for control risks in Singapore. Hello, Ling. Hi, Bill. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. And Nguyen Hak Zhang is doing his PhD at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand. He's doing really interesting research comparing political accountability in Vietnam and China. Hello, Zhang. Hi, Bill. Thanks for inviting me to this very interesting program. Great. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. So the Communist Party of Vietnam just held its Congress. The meeting lasted about a week. And while the opening and the closing sessions were televised, most of what happened in between was done in secret. So my first question to you both is, how much do we know about what actually happened during the meeting? And how do we know it? The short answer is no, we don't know much. If I can generalize this, I think there are two channels for us. And when I say us, I mean Vietnamese people. And of course, for people whose job is analyzing the Congress, like Zhang and I, we also have our own channels to get access to the information. But yeah, there are two channels, officials and unofficial. Officer is, like you said, what televised and we can see the speech of those leaders and news that was published by state-owned media, which was vetted by the party before being published. I actually have to say those speech that we watch on TV are actually very helpful. When we read through the language of their speech and we can compare it to the past Congress, of course, not much difference, but you see the difference and you can analyze why they made such difference in their language. And another channel is unofficial channels, which are blog, Facebook posts from quite prominent bloggers and people who in the past used to publish quite accurate information before we read it on media. So this time they also published quite a few rumors. Some are true, some are not. But we also take that as a source of information. And we know that in order to have such information, there must be some motivation behind why they get such information, who leaked the information out and what for. That, that's what we heard from the Congress. So people deliberately release information to make somebody look good or make somebody look bad. Yeah, indeed. Okay. And would you say that the rumors that you heard before and during the Congress turned out to be accurate or were there any that were completely wild and off the mark? So after the Congress, there's only one position that was confirmed, which is the party chief. Normally after the Congress, not only the party chief, but they also announced the nominees for the top other three positions, which are the prime minister, the president and the head of national assembly. But in this Congress, they only announced the party chief position and the rest, they just ignore it. And we guess that there are still some factional infighting among them. That's why they couldn't agree on who they're going to nominate this time. 
So we have to wait until either March or April for those positions. And on the partnership, yes, rumor was absolutely right that Wen Fuchang stay for another term. Right. So Zhang, maybe I could ask you, tell us how people actually get chosen, because it's not a simple election that you vote for the top person, is it? Yeah, so in theory, in Vietnam, the party follows a Leninist principle that we call democratic centralism, which basically means that 5 million members of the party vote to choose 1,600 delegates, and then they will go to the Congress and they vote for the new central committee. And then the central committee vote for the Politburo and the general secretary. So the system is just like a pyramid. But in practice, the power actually stays mostly with the outgoing Politburo and the central committee because they actually have the exclusive authorities to test the rules of the game as well as the nomination of the new central committee members and the new Politburo members as well as the new nomination for the general secretary. So it's actually a very, very important feature of Vietnamese politics that the outgoing leadership actually have a really strong power in choosing the next leadership. Okay, and so we've ended up with a kind of popularity poll, and the person who comes out top becomes General Secretary of the Communist Party. Is that really how it works? It starts with the nomination. So basically, if you are nominated by outgoing Central Committee to be the General Secretary, it's very most likely that you will be the next general secretary because the procedure is that when you have a nomination of the outgoing central committee, and then you will get the confirmation at the Congress. And then at the Congress, if there is some other nominations, these nominees will have to compete with the nomination of the outgoing central committee, which is very difficult. And most of the time, it just doesn't work. As we see in the last Congress, when Zoom was not nominated by the outgoing Central Committee because there's only one nomination. And then at the Congress, there were some nominations for him to be voted for the next Central Committee and be eligible to be voted as the next General Secretary. But he couldn't get it because it's just too difficult to gather enough support in the Congress. So basically, you know, in short, if you get a nomination from the outgoing Central Committee, it's very likely that you get the post. Right. So we're talking about the last Congress five years ago when Mr. Chom was challenged by the then Prime Minister, Mr. Zung, who wanted to run against him. And because he couldn't get the official nomination, he tried to run as an insurgent and failed. And now General Secretary is the most important job in Vietnamese politics, really, because the party sets the policy and the government implements it. So there's always a bit of a fight in the run-up to the Congress to get that job. So, Ling, can you tell us who was in contention for the top job this time around and what were the differences between them? If you ask me these questions, like, let's say, two years ago, when Fu Chok had a stroke, I could say he's definitely on top of those candidates running for the position. But then he had a serious stroke. He even, like, during the opening ceremony, he came out shaking during his one-hour speech. And I told myself, he definitely cannot stay for another term. But then he also announced that they had some exceptions to let him stay over for another term in the Politburo. At that time, I still couldn't believe that he could be party chief for another term. And another candidate is Chen Quoc Vuong, the secretariat of the Central Committee, basically number five position in the country. That sounds like a really obscure job, doesn't it? He's the secretary of the Central Committee Secretariat. But actually, that's quite an important position, isn't it? It is. As I said, it's like number five position in the countries after the party chief, president, prime minister and head of parliament. 
we already assume that he's going to be the next party chief. That's normally the norm. And also before that post, he was the head of the anti-corruption campaign. So extremely important position. And the third candidate is Winston Fook, the current prime minister. Mr. Chong, Mr. Vuong, they were actually officially too old to stand again, whereas Mr. Fook was not. And yet the rules were bent, I suppose you could say, on this occasion. Yes, you're right, Bill. And I have to say, like, Mr. Fook, he has very successful term serving as a prime minister. Of course, there's a problem here and there, but compared to his predecessor, I could say he had an extremely successful term. And in fact, he got the highest confidential vote in the Congress, like over 95%. I don't remember exactly, but like much higher than Nguyen Phu Chong. And people could assume that he's like number one candidate for the party chief position. He's also very successful in managing the COVID-19 pandemic. Another point for him to run to the party chief position. So the last candidate, I could say, is Phạm Minh Ching. He's the head of the Central Organization Committee of the party, which basically like managed the personnel of the party, which is also a very important position. And you get to know all the scandals. You get to know all the gossip about people. Yes, you can say so. And in fact, Ching is the youngest among those guys. He was the deputy minister of the public security ministry, which managed the law enforcement in the country. He also served five years as the party chief in Quang province, one of the biggest provinces in Vietnam. And during his term, the province also witnessed like very successful economic development. So yeah, he has like police experience. He has economics management experience. And he has parties management experience, so sounds like a perfect person for the top job. He sounds like Mr. Perfect. You had a competent prime minister, then you had a sort of ideologue communist party person, and then the current guy who was too old to stand again and had recently had a stroke. So it does seem very remarkable that the oldest guy, the least healthy guy, gets re-elected. Zhang, can you tell us why you think that happened? I think it's Chang's uh, election is really a big surprise for us, even for the very you know seasoned Vietnamese observers. We know that he's actually the undisputed leader in Vietnam for decades. We don't really know the answer for sure, but in my opinion, we can consider there must be at least two issues. So the first one that is we can believe that the Politburo and the Central Committee couldn't agree on who is going to succeed him. Like Ling said, his preferred candidate Chen Gufu was not really popular among the Central Committee, and he didn't get enough votes to secure his special exemption because he was overage. Secondly, I think his re-election also proves Trump's domination over the personnel issue as well. The fact that he could manage to break both the party constitution and also you know, a lot of other norms in Vietnamese politics and nominate himself and then get elected. Not only he get re-elected for the third term, but also he can uh, stop the top or pillars with two of his allies, Park Min Ching and Bunny Hui as well. So I would think these two things that we can make a guess about Trump's re-election. And I would believe that the party also wants to emphasize on the continuity because when they cannot choose, cannot have a strong candidate that satisfies all of the factions, and then it's probably better to have relatively successful general secretary in Trump to keep the position until they can choose a good candidate that satisfies all of the Central Committee members. And Ling, would you agree with that? Yeah. In any political system, a leader is chosen either because they are very popular 
or because they are very powerful or they are a compromised figures that can like makes all factions, all parties happy. And in this case, that is Trump's position. Is he popular? Yes, he is very popular thanks to his anti-corruption campaign, which he's claimed that like clean up the party. But is the parties really clean now? I doubt it. Is he's powerful? He was very powerful in his last two terms, I could say. As Zhang mentioned, he changed the party constitution. That's a huge job. But he's 76 now. He suffered a stroke. He even couldn't stand still during his one-hour speech. What could you expect from that old man? I could say the main reasons for him to stay in this term because the different factions can see him as a compromise figure, someone who stands there and still let the other faction find a way to do their business deals and survive and then fight another day to take over the power, whatever the power is. And it's absolutely better than losing now, right? But that could be a bit of a worry, couldn't it? I mean, if you haven't got somebody who can stamp their authority and tell people to stop arguing, you could have a much more divided and factional party leadership. Yes. But I think during last month before the Congress, there was aggressive factional infighting within them. And if they cannot agree after those fighting, then it's the best choice. Let Chow stay there and other peoples like keep doing what they are doing and wait until they can fight again. You use the word factions, which can be a bit controversial when people talk about Vietnam. Do you see factions as like a group, something like a party within a party, or is it just friends of this guy or, you know, kind of people who take bribes from that particular organization or whatever it might be? I think it could be both those who share the same interests or those who could benefit from grouping together and fight against something or gain something for themselves or those who pursue the same ideologies like Chomps and Chen Kukwung, for example, could be a combination of both. So when you say ideologies, those two names you mentioned, Mr. Chom and Mr. Vuong, I mean, they're sort of like, is it fair to call them hardliners, would you say? They believe the party must come first and the party is greater than any individual politician. Is that the right way to think of them? I have to be very honest with you. I myself haven't spoken to any of those guys, so I don't have my own assessment on them. But from following Trump's works during past 10 years, I would say, yeah, it's true when talking about Trump. Vuong has very low public profile, so we have very little information to understand who he is. And like Zhang said, that's why he's not very popular among central committee members. That's why he didn't get the vote. So I think we need to spend more time to understand that person. He might be a very important figure in Vietnam political system in the next five years. Mm, I always think this is a problem when outsiders, particularly Westerners, look at Vietnam and the people that talk to you are the people who are most sort of open-minded, reformist. The people who don't talk to you, you don't think about very much, but actually they seem to dominate in the party. Do you think that's true, Zhang? Yeah, in a sense, I would say the party always try to balance between what you say as conservative. Conservative here doesn't mean that like they want to go back to the central plan economy or to be really, really repressive regime. But conservative here means that they don't really want to have any kind of like liberalizing effect when you open up the economy and when it integrates into the global economy. So the way that the party works is that they want to keep the balance between the domination of the party over the Vietnamese politics and also having a really strong economic growth. 
So if we look at the two terms that Trump served as the general secretary, he actually hasn't really intervened a lot into foreign affairs and economic policies for that matter. Right. So let's broaden the discussion out a little bit. So we've talked about the general secretary and Mr. Chom became the third term general secretary, something which hasn't happened since a guy called Lei Zuan, who was a terrible old Stalinist back in the 1970s and 80s. But the Politburo is now a total of 18 people. And I noticed that the average age, I think, is 61, older than it has been in the past. And seven of its members, about a third of the total, work or used to work for the security services, either in the Ministry of Public Security or the Ministry of Defense. What do you think these things might tell us about how the Politburo is going to direct the country over the next five years? Ling? Yeah, you're right that there are significant numbers of people with security background in the Politburo now, which is unprecedented. I couldn't say they are trying to militarize the political system in Vietnam. I don't think that's true. But it is worrying that a lot of security figures showing up in the system. What does that mean? I think it's still early for us to say because we need to see what exactly these people are going to do first. But my job is talking to foreign investors every day. And when I share that information with them, their immediate reaction is worrying because in their mindsets, they think that those security people, they are less open to foreign investment. They tend to put more control into the business activities. And one of the things that they've been worrying in particular is cybersecurity law which was announced in Vietnam like two years ago, but hasn't really like executed in the countries. But that's what the investors are worrying because what if like the new prime minister, who's very likely to be Phạm Minh Chính, a former police background, what if he's going to like tighten the cyber security law and make the life of like business and in particular foreign business a lot more difficult? That's one of the main concerns. Right. And Zhang, anything you want to say about the makeup of the Politburo? Yeah, sure. First, I want to pick up from links that actually, if we think about people with political background, doesn't necessarily mean that he would not be, you know, a cabinet reformist that we wanted to. Like Prime Minister Winter Zoom, he actually used to work really long time in the public security as well. But of course, when we see the combination of the Disability Bureau with, I would say it's a huge win for the security wing, I would expect that this means the parties still consider political stability is a top priority. But on the positive side, we can see that if all the rumors and expectations are true, and then we have like three out of the four top leaders, except the top uh, experienced technocrats. Then we have the promotion of Minister of Trade, Chen Dunang, and then Minister of Finance, Ding Dianzong. They also have really strong economic background as well. And I would expect that the Bureau doesn't really want to emphasize only on the security and political stability, but also they try to keep balance between that requirement for stability as well as to balance economic growth. So an argument could be that because the Politburo thinks this is going to be a time of economic change, that actually having lots of security people on the Politburo might be a way of maintaining stability at a time of change, sort of thinking, they don't want the Soviet Union thing to happen, that when you start to reform and, and open up a little bit, then the system collapses. Does that make any sense to you? All the former policy security guys, they went through the party organizations. So they work in the party organizations. 
Obviously, we can consider them as cap-like party conservatives in the sense that they prefer to protect the regime survival as a top priority for their political carriers. So this is a way for them to guarantee the economic development would not lead to too much liberalization that the party doesn't want to see. Okay, and Ling? Yeah, let's say it's true. Then a good question. Why now? Why they suddenly change now? What are the uncertainty factors or the instabilities that make them have to change it now? Now, interestingly, one person who didn't get elected to the Politburo was someone who's developed a reputation as one of the most effective government ministers over the past year. So Deputy Prime Minister of Udukdam still heads the COVID-19 task force and is generally thought to have done an excellent job in controlling the disease. But it wasn't enough to get onto the Politburo. Why not, do you think? It was actually quite sad to <laughs> not see Udukdam names in the Politburo list. And apparently being young or relatively young and competent is not enough to climb up the political ladder in Vietnam. I think the main reason is because he didn't gain enough support from top people who can promote him and support him to get into the Politburo. It's also maybe because he's not belong to any strong faction that could like support him. Yeah, Zhang, you might be able to add more to that. I would say that from the previous Congress, because the Prime Minister actually was really strong, so he can actually manage to have more governance members into the plate bureaus. But now, after like five years of anti-corruption campaign, of course, the party wing is getting more and more powerful. And so they are more able to put more kind of like conservative members into the political bureaus and it's kind of like reflect the factional change, not as much as the desire to keep stability. I want to quote contemporary Vietnamese idiom, which says, which in English means relationship comes first and then comes second, money. Third is family background and fourth, intelligence or competence. So Mr. Dam actually doesn't really have strong first three. So he, as Ling say, he doesn't really have a strong factional support from the top leader, at least in compared to other new promotion to the political bureaus like Minister of Industry and Trade Chen Tunang, who is the son of former president of Vietnam, Chen Duc Lung. And also, if you pick up from the fates of other, we we'll say, popular politicians in Vietnam like Nguyen Tân Dung, Ding Le Thang, or recently Nguyen Đức Chung, it seems that Mr. Dam's popularity probably is considered as having kept like populist tendency by other senior members. So his face probably is seen because of that as well, because populism is not considered as a good thing by collective leadership system in Vietnam. And would it be fair to say that the current leadership, Mr. Chom and, and his supporters, that was one of the things they hated about Mr. Zung, the previous prime minister, was that he became too popular and he was trying to appeal to public opinion and not worry so much about the party. And that's why he became regarded as dangerous by the party conservatives. Do you think that's fair? We have a saying in Vietnam, say like, if the people choose, then the party don't choose. But in a sense, I would not say that because Mr. Dam is too popular among the population that he could not get the promotion. But the fact is that senior leaders might see his popularity as he trying to do some politics. He trying to appeal to the people to get his support from the people. So he has some kind of like populist tendency. So popularity doesn't equal to populism. But inside the party's mind, they might see his actions trying to be more populist. And that is not a good thing for the party. That's very quickly. If I can add into that, you just remind me of a quote that a family member of Nguyen Tân told me. 
the number of friends he's made is equal to the number of enemies he made. Right. <laughs> a good rule of Vietnamese politics, try to uh, keep your friends low profile, I guess. Now, I mean, we've talked a lot about these personal questions. How much do you think they'll actually affect the direction of Vietnam's policy towards, say, the economy or political change or its international relations over the next five years? I think the country's development prospects are likely to be more of the same under another term of charms as a party chief. And because as long as the people's incomes and other personal benefits continue to raise, they will remain optimistic about future of the countries and they don't really care much about what's going on in political system. And as long as the country's GDP is still growing positive and high, investment still coming in because look, where else you can invest in Southeast Asia these days? So I couldn't expect much changes. I remember in 2016, just like a few days before the party congress, there was a kind of like imagine voting on social media, which we have like two candidates, like Mr. Zung and Mr. Who do you want to be the new federal secretary? And unsurprisingly, Mr. Zung got like 60, 67, 68 votes and Chuck got 2%. The party worries about individual politics, worries about some popular leaders who can change the direction of the party without consulting other members. So this is a way that they want to control the party, which is to keep the collective mechanism at work. Which adds a little extra layer of concern to if there's going to be this ongoing factional battle and his health starts to deteriorate, it could be problems at the top, couldn't it? Yes. Actually, Zhang just brought up a very good point and makes me wonder, what if tomorrow Chop has another shock or a serious health problem and he cannot stay then. What's going to happen? So I think the level of uncertainty in the country is definitely higher than before, right? Yeah, I would agree with Ling on that. I don't see really much of the drastic changes, at least in the next three years. But I would expect that for the second half of the term, there might be some risk of internal fighting because, as you know, Mr. Chop is really not really in good health and he might retire even before the term. And if he keeps until the end of his term, and then the question over succession will arise again in the second half of his term. So this might be the thing that we have to look forward in the second half of the term. But otherwise, I would see the continuity of their economic development and foreign affairs and domestic policy. There were not a lot of changes. Now, one question that listeners might be interested in is how this might affect Vietnam's international relations. Many of these people who have come to the Politburo are more conservative. I would suspect that they're more friendly towards China perhaps than to the United States. Do you think this might mean a slight adjustment in Vietnam's foreign policy? It might become less keen to be cozy with the United States, say, on sort of international issues, the South China Sea, and more quiet and sort of friendlier towards China? There is a tendency among the Vietnamese observers that you consider someone as pro-China and someone as pro-West. And some people believe that some party conservatives would be pro-China, and I would not really agree with that because we can say that party conservatives are nationalists, but not definitely pro-China. As you can see from the last two terms of Trump, Vietnam is not moving closer to China, but actually moving closer to U.S. in a way to balance the relationship between China and U.S. And if Mr. Winston Phuc, as expected to be the president of Vietnam, I think he will do a good job in pushing the relationship between Vietnam and U.S. even to a higher level. 
because he managed to reach really well, keeping a good relationship with the U.S. under Donald Trump. And this is really, really a big achievement for him. And so I would say that for the next five years, foreign affairs will not change the direction. The focus of Vietnamese foreign affairs will continue to work on multilateral institutions, especially ASEAN and APEC. And then they will try to keep balance between China and U.S. as have always been doing. Ling, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree with Zhang. I just wanted to add a few things. So first, don't forget that the incumbent foreign minister, Phạm Bing Ming, he will move to a new position because he already served two terms as a foreign minister. So that might pose some short-term uncertainty over Vietnam's foreign affairs issues because for now, although there are some candidates for the foreign minister position, I think there's nothing really firmly confirmed yet. The second point is that when we're talking about Vietnam international relations, of course, uh, people always talk about balancing between the two superpowers, U.S. and China. And I could say one of the main issues is the South China Sea issue will be a lot more intense for Vietnam this year and next year as well, because the China's Communist Party is going to have a Congress next year. I'm pretty sure that they will make their lives a lot more difficult before that. So it will be very difficult to Vietnam to even maintain the status quo in the event of more Chinese aggression. Right. Okay. Well, that's a slightly (laughs) worrying note on which to bring this discussion to an end. Thank you. It's been really enlightening and very interesting. My guests have been Nguyen Haxang, PhD candidate at the Victoria University of Wellington in New Zealand, and Nguyen Phuong Ling, who is an analyst with control risks in Singapore. Well, that's it for this week's edition of Asia Matters. My name is Bill Hayden. This episode was brought to you in conjunction with the Asia Pacific program at Chatham House. Our thanks to Jay Seung Lee, who produced it. And please do subscribe to the podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms or visit asiamatterspod.com, the website. Thanks for listening. See you next time.